Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The joy and mystery of writing a play is that you genuinely create something out of nothing. It's almost the most intense experience of the oddity of free will, that you literally seem to be coming up with uncaused effects. Uncaused effects. Playwrights. On. Hello. Welcome to Pursued by a Bear, the theatre podcast from Exeunt magazine, which this month is in association with Nick Hearn Books. That was playwright and theatre academic Dan Revelato, expressing quite beautifully what it means and feels like to be a writer. We spoke to nine writers with varying levels of experience and at different stages in the writing process. We're going to find out what it means to be a playwright, and we're going to look at the journey, or road, or roller coaster, or whatever, from page to stage. Yeah, metaphors are hard, which is why I could never be a writer. I'm a member of a group rather grandly called the British Theatre Consortium, and we organise conferences and we do research. At the end of the 2000s, I was involved in a project. We discovered that the Arts Council had stopped getting any detailed statistical information about the repertoire. So they basically didn't know what they were funding. And ever since then, I and David Edgar... I'm David Edgar. We've managed to get a bit of money from them to do a pilot study. We've done an investigation of well over 200 theatres in the calendar year 2013. And we were just really interested to find out how much theatre there was, what kind of theatre there was. And we discovered, I must say to our surprise, that for the first time, we think, since the late 19th century... New work is now more popular, it's more produced than revivals. And that's to be compared with the situation when I entered the theatre in the 70s, when new work was well under 20% of the repertoire. So that's an extraordinary change. Here's David with a potted history of new writing in the UK. And it is quite potted. Shakespeare doesn't even get a shout-out. I've been doing this since, since the early 70s, and there have been a succession of peaks. There was the you know, the John Osborne, uh, Arnold Wesker period at the Royal Court in the late 50s, which is famed as the, as the kind of creation myth of contemporary British theatre. There was the so-called State of England dramatists of the 70s, of which I was one. There was a huge upsurge in women's writing in the 80s. People like Carol Churchill and Pam Gems and Timberlake Wertenbaker, but but many, many others. In the 90s, there was the In Your Face group, Sarah Kane, Mark Ravenhill, etc. I, I think in the in the noughts, initially, there was a period where new writing was dominated by fact-based work, verbatim theatre and so on, where the, the sort of individual named writer was perhaps less important. But over the last five or six years, there's been an extraordinary upsurge of of new political work, people like James Graham, and also a, a number of really interesting and important women political playwrights like Lucy Kirkwood, Lucy Preble, and Laura Wade. Those peaks have been different, and I think their audiences have been different. And there's no doubt that for some reason, the in-your-face 
groups in the 90s had a particular uh, audience abroad, particularly on, in continental Europe, which made them very, very prominent. And I think it was a, an extraordinary group of playwrights. So let's start at the beginning. How do you become a playwright? I never thought I could be a writer. This is Katrina Kerridge. It kind of never crossed my mind because I couldn't spell very well. I wrote very colloquially. For me, my first access to theatre was through youth theatre. I didn't, didn't have the opportunity to study drama at high school. I'm Steph Smith, and so it was on a Saturday we'd all meet and we'd all play and perform and do drama games. The woman who ran the workshop said, why don't you think about formalising this and going and studying theatre? And if it hadn't have been for her, I think I would have gone off and done something else entirely different. I missed my module choices at Birmingham Uni and ended up on the playwriting course, which was led by Steve Waters, who was my tutor and my mentor. My name's Steve Waters. And so I really am a huge advocate of getting young people involved in theatre, not necessarily in an academic way, but certainly for youth theatre. I think it was the making of me. I, I owe it a lot, that's for sure. I came to the world of theatre quite late, and I came to it initially in an academic setting. Not necessarily an academic way. And I know that's always a pitfall, that you don't want to make your works too literary because they are things to perform. My name is Tim Foley. First play I put on at university was called Meat. And I was so proud of myself. It's about a bunch of wankers who were in an old boys club. And I put it on and everyone was like, oh yeah, great. It's a bit like posh, isn't it? I, no, I've never heard of I was like, oh, fuck. Thanks to Steve. Steve Waters. I kind of discovered this freedom in language that you get with playwriting and with dialogue. Now I can write without feeling imprisoned by structure, grammar, spelling, and I don't have to finish sentences, which is great. And then my next play... And I don't have to finish sentences. ...was called Baby Bottle Cosmo, and it was about two couples who argued over their children who'd had a spat at school. And I doubt if And I put that on and everyone was like, oh great, that's a bit like God of Carnage, isn't it? And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah. And like, oh, fuck. It seems like that you have to read other plays to make sure that they haven't happened yet. Wherever I go, like people will ask, like, what do you do? And I tell them I write plays. And then eventually they'll ask me, yeah, but what else do you do? I don't know. You, you, you wonder if this is the point where you can say, yeah. I'm a writer, or whether you still have to be like, oh no, I do things in writing. At US immigration, I describe myself as a screenwriter because they probably don't know what a playwright is. Okay, thanks, Jack Thorne. We'll come back to you later. I guess you call yourself a writer when you realise that it's not just something you just do, it's something you have to do. Somebody uh, came up to me outside after the dogs of war. That was a play that Tim just had on at the old Red Lion in London. And they were like, are you involved in the production? And I panicked and I was like, yeah, I, I painted a bit of the set. I don't mind how people want to refer to me. I, I would just say I'm a writer, really. We'll come back later to you too, Tom Basden. I kept setting myself boundaries that I would then surpass and then move and set boundaries. So, of course, it's like, oh, when I've written my first play, and then you write the first play. That could have just been a one-off for my second play, and you do your second play. When I've got an agent, and then you get an agent, and then it's, oh, no, when I'm published, where my play's on, and I don't know, I guess you just sort of wake up one day and you're like, fuck. I'm a writer. So that's how they identify themselves, but it's impossible to avoid other people labelling them too, and not necessarily in ways that they'd like. I get really annoyed by people saying, like, female writer or black writer. I think being a female writer, I've, I've never thought of myself as, um... Hmm, let me think. Um... That's Rebecca Lenkiewicz. When I speak to her, it's press night for her latest play, The Invisible, which is on at the Bush Theatre. 
I don't understand what the point of these prefixes are, apart from to make the reader carry certain ideas in, into what they're about to read or see. I, I think it's really unhelpful and not fair on the writer, I think. Everyone should be allowed to present stuff on, on its own terms. I think that sexism is everywhere, and I think that we have a long way to go in addressing the balance. There seems to be a very, very, very clear sense of a glass ceiling for women playwrights. What I'm curious about is if there's a way of, like, hiding your gender. So many times you have to do an equal monitoring form, and I get a little bit German about it, very cynical about it, and I don't want to answer it. It shouldn't matter. A story should talk for itself. Journalists hate that because they want to know what the scoop is. They love nothing better than assembling groups of writers and what they're really sort of going is like they're all sort of the same well and we'll put the, the female ones in nice dresses for the purposes of photo shoot they're not engaging with the content of what they're writing it may be time to do, do quotas or something because there's no reasonable explanation i'm absolutely proud to be a female writer you know but i don't sit down and consciously think but of course I'm a woman you know and I write about women because that's my DNA but I also write about men I probably go towards a lot of stories led by women to redress a balance subconsciously because I am tired of seeing the male view so how does a playwright get started is there such a thing as a career for writers let's start with someone who's seen many career flourish and many flounder Steve Waters these are difficult times, no doubt about it. I think for, to start out as a playwright now, you have to be very courageous. You have to have stamina. And Dan Rebellato, who, having taught plenty of students, has seen similar successes and, well, non-successes. I just don't think there is a very clearly fixed career path for a playwright. I don't know whether a career is that helpful. I would also pick against the word career. I think that suggests that there's a linear process from you know A to B to C. There are ways in which a playwright needs to sense that they're progressing, but I think that's a distraction from the matter of actually just thinking with the next play, how good can I possibly make it? If you're very lucky, you will get your play done at a good fringe theatre, then you get a load of commissions from fairly national companies and a few of those get put on and then there's a kind of rolling process of your plays being done. You do one job, then you do this job, or you get paid this much, then you get paid that much as a progression. And actually, I think that's an unhealthy and an unrealistic way to look at playwriting because you, you never know what opportunities are around the corner. And also, you just never know how people are going to react to your plays and therefore what opportunities will come to them. It's still pretty hand-to-mouth. The possibility of simply living off playwriting it's probably always been a fairly tough call. If you think about someone like Pinter, you know, it's astonishing to, to remember that most of his plays started out in the West End, in commercial theatre as opposed to the subsidised sector, which is hard to discern now. I mean, you know, we really depend upon our subsidised stages to keep new writing afloat. Can you be a successful playwright and not have much of a career? You know, what's all, what do all those terms mean when you're talking about art? Like when you're writing something, you, you should have restrictions or like having a commission-based project is great. You do think about the practicality of what it means for someone to invest in you either via commission or through development time and how possible it is for this play to be put on. And I, I don't think that's a great thought to have in your head, actually. And I, I really do work to kick against that and just try and tell the story that I would like to tell. There might be a difference between a commission and a kind of spec script. But if you're writing a spec script, I think it would be really depressing 
if the writer kind of thinks, well, I'll maximise my chances of getting on by having two people. That's the least creative thought. But if it's a one-handed where you've decided that it's really necessary for the character to do something completely crazy and out there, which is going to be like really hard to stage, but it's part of the merit of the piece, then you should be able to do that. Or try it at least. I think for early career playwrights, and you know, I include myself in that bracket often, you do think about what are the possibilities of this play being staged. Because actually, what's going to work better for a, a really young beginning writer? The theatre receiving your script and then going, oh, this is efficient, we could probably put this on. Or the theatre receiving your script and going, fuck, this is the most sensational bit of writing, we couldn't possibly put it on, but this is a writer we want to work with can shrink the imagination to the spaces available until all that people can write is 20-minute plays and monologues. My worry is that we're going to end up with a series of two-handers and not many bigger plays asking other questions and just taking bigger risks. Yes, being pragmatic. I mean, I often try and get the writers I teach to make sure that they're, they're leaving us with a number of things in their portfolio. But if it's a dissertation play, then for God's sake, let rip. The first play I wrote was a monologue, and that's certainly true, and that was about trying trying to see if I could write anything that was stage-worthy. The second play I wrote, because I wrote it for my students, had, I think, about 50 characters. <laughs> Dramatic writers need to keep their eyes open to possibilities of other forms, and why wouldn't they, actually? I do do workshops, I do other things that aren't just sitting at my desk writing, and although, of course, that helps supplement my income I also think that's really important to my process doing sort of things that are maybe slightly left of centre in regards to writing I think can be really fruitful because they also give you time away from your desk maybe part of pursuing a living as a playwright has to involve a capability and a willingness to work in different media it feels the playwright now would typically have more of what they sometimes call a portfolio career I think there are certain young writers who who may well see the theatre as a stepping stone to those other types of activities, certainly there are directors who do. You kind of realise that the skills you have as a playwright are actually quite broad, and you do need to learn to sort of disaggregate some of them. Most of these writers write for film, TV or radio as well as for the stage. Jack Thorne has written for Skins, Shameless, The Fades, This Is England, he adapted Let the Right One In for the National Theatre of Scotland. Oh, and he's also writing the new Harry Potter play with J.K. Rowling. It depends on what you can live on, doesn't it? Before I worked in telly, I was living on about eight grand a year. I wouldn't worry about it, though. He's clearly not mortal. He writes for ten hours a day, six days a week. A radio play and a stage play is all you need in order to live off that. It's not a particularly pleasant life. No, in terms of reaching a median wage, I imagine it's tough writing for fringe theatre because you just don't, unless you're Simon. Simon Stevens? Apparently he's a big deal. You don't get the number of productions that all allow you to stay in it and you write a lot of shows that people don't put on. It was always an ambition because I grew up watching telly. I didn't really grow up going to the theatre that much. I went to the theatre a bit. My dad took me to the theatre. But the thing I loved was watching EastEnders for my mum. And I always said that my ambition was to write for EastEnders. When I did a play called When You Cure Me at the Bush, Jamie Britton and then Brian Elsley, creators of Skins, came to see it. I thought it was a tragic play about rape. And they thought I was well suited to comedy drama. And then very quickly I was hired by Shameless. And then just kept writing for telly. 
I find TV easier. There's a comfort to writing telly that I don't feel when I'm writing theatre. And it's always painful. I find it a lot harder. I feel like I make more mistakes. Next time, Shula plays Peacemaker and Kate shares something personal. That's this evening just after seven and again tomorrow afternoon just after two. I think differently about writing a radio play. Now on Radio 4, today's drama. Radio, for me, is a really gratifying, lovely form in which to work. Then I would about a stage play or, or a performance art piece. I've always loved radio because it feels like a pretty pure collaboration. On the radio you get this sort of amazing thing of you write an afternoon play. The afternoon drama is next. And it, you'll probably get a couple of million people listening to it. And you, obviously you don't get that in the theatre. Radio, for me, is a really gratifying, lovely form in which to work. I've been very fortunate in my collaborations there. And the producers, who are the directors, are intelligent and generous, and it's a really satisfying medium. And of course you get to work with the most unbelievable people on the radio. Because they're in for two days and they don't have to learn the piece. I've worked with Michael Palin. It's got me pining for the field! And Glenda Jackson. Thatcherism, the most heinous social economic and spiritual damage upon this country. And Robert Lindsay. Well, I was led to believe you've been dead 50 years. <laughs> I could be Tom Stopper, and I'll probably never write a stage play for Glenda Jackson. Thatcherism. And Michael Palin. Fields. And Robert Lindsay. Dead 50 years. Film, I love writing, and it's just a very different creature. I stick with theatre and film and radio because they are about the intensity of storytelling that comes from a 90-minute or a two-hour piece of work. I still don't really quite understand the appeal of 60 hours of storytelling. Maybe it's just because one lives a limited life. You're doing it all the time. You're listening to radio, you're watching films. It's not like it's innate. You know, you've, you've processed it, you know, all my life. I've been watching films. I don't mean I can produce a brilliant structure, but, you know, I've been watching thousands of films. It's, it's not something mystical. It's a process of ingesting. Students, particularly younger writers, are coming out of very different contexts than I certainly came out. On the one hand, there's the Netflix generation. It's the notion of stories on demand which still feels to me strangely wrong. <laughs> I'm used to having to sort of put a bit of effort in to get to my stories, you know, whether that's geographical journeys from Cambridge to London or whatever, or, you know, seeking out the damn things, you know, that are on in a given night in a different place. And I think all of that is part of the narrative of a piece of theatre. I think the task of delivering everything you need within the compass of an evening is to me what is ultimately what drama is about. That's where its energy is located. Everything else is, is the novel. The 2013 film Ida, which Rebecca Lenkovich co-wrote with director Pavel Pavlikovsky, won an Oscar. So film is something which is clearly important to Rebecca, both to write and to watch.
watched films from a very early age. So I think that they have been very influential. And I watched a lot of classics and a lot of film noir and a lot of horror movies. under the Borgias they had warfare, terror, murder and bloodshed but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci and the Renaissance. In Switzerland they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. father bought me, I was ill in hospital and he bought me a pile of classics illustrated comics. So I was going through at a very young age, you know, really good stories like The Prisoner of Zender, Green Mansions, you know, amazing stories. So I think that that background of story was wonderful, although ironically I find story the hardest thing to do. I find action and story much harder than character. Tom Basden agrees. I mean, I think one of the things that I've found with writing anything in my life is that the story structure is the, by far the hardest thing. I remember reading North by Northwest as a script and just turning the pages over, and I admire that. That's not my sharpest muscle. So it's quite interesting that the things you've admired from your youth, you, you know, you're trying to chase, but you haven't necessarily got them. Party. That's a play that Tom wrote for the Edinburgh Fringe in 2009 and was then turned into a Radio 4 series. It came out of being a long sketch, really. It came out of me writing a sketch and not knowing where it was going. And then I turned it into a, a, an hour-long play. And then that's when, when I was doing that, I kind of parachuted in quite a lot of the sort of story elements. And, you know, it's quite difficult and it was quite fiddly writing it and then deleting it and then writing it again and just keep going until it sort of made sense to me, I think. With that, it's probably a good time to talk about process, the how and when and where of writing. Dan. Before you've got the idea, you have nothing. And Tim. I always have a beginning in mind and I always have an end in mind. So I just write and eventually get there. Now what happens when I try and put my fingers on the keyboard? Will it be rubbish or will it be good? And because you can't, you can't guarantee that it's going to be good, that can cause real anxieties, which is, I think, why you get a lot of writers have these ridiculous little rituals. My first draft of a script, I will handwrite. Ridiculous little rituals. And that's become even more of a necessity lately because I don't have a laptop. Because it broke, and I'm too broke myself to replace it. And then I will type it up, uh, and in typing... I end up redrafting. And then here's the weird bit. Ridiculous little ritual. What I do after then is I'll have a typed copy, then I'll print it out, then I'll handwrite it again. I'll basically copy from Times New Roman into my own vicious scroll. But I will just sort of bounce between the two mediums. There's a real shift in attitude from typing to handwriting, which I really enjoy. I have to write on this type of paper at this time in the morning. I have to have my lucky gonk next to me. A uniball, not 0.5 millimetres. Black. It's a talisman against failure. I'm making this sound very ritualistic. I write at home mainly. I don't write at home. I have a desk in my home. Either at the kitchen table or 
there's a garden shed I sometimes write in. This new house, so I'm delighted to have a space within my own home where I can go and write. My office is very white and very clean and has lots of books in it. I can't really get much done at home, so I have to go out and write in other places. On my own... In a cafe. I make myself into a tiny ball quite often and I'll be on the floor. I also really like to write in cafes. I know it's a cliche, but there's something about being in a busy atmosphere that sort of creates a white noise that allows me just to escape. I've tried to use libraries, but they seem quite restless. You kind of really throw your body into it sometimes. The best part is just when you start out and really try and find the characters. I get a little bit obsessed by my characters in a way. I start to look at visual things that might be relative to their worlds. I create character Spotify playlists. Character development's a funny one because I, I only end up writing people that I know, and I don't mean actually know, but just I know what they'll do and I'll know where they'll go and I'll know what pushes them. Like one of the characters, Elena, she listens to a lot of Jason Derulo. So I'm just going to... One. I must have adverts. Oh, no. <laughs> it's called Talk Dirty. It's this one. I know what I New York to Haiti. I got lipstick stamps on my passport. You make it hard to leave. Talk dirty to me. I think I've sort of conquered writer's block. You talk dirty to me. You know, you're always waiting for a certain key into something, you know, some kind of ignition. And when that happens, and usually it's some psychological something, then that's just great. You're off. There will be some evenings where I'm writing it and everything I'm writing, I'm like, oh, rubbish. This is so limp and lame and pathetic. And what I've discovered is I just carry on writing anyway. Because the next morning, I look at it and I go, oh, that's actually fine. And what's going on really is that you have the critic in your head and is seeing all the faults. But if you could just ignore that critic, it works fine anyway. You want your mum, who basically goes, it's brilliant. You definitely don't want Matt Truman in your head. Quite often the starting point for me for a play will be reading non-fiction and documentaries. You know, it's about being in the world, seeing the world how it is seeing different parts of the world that I might not have access to. Lately, when I'm on the tube, I try to look at people rather than read a newspaper from start to finish. So instead of making time pass, I want to absorb people. But it doesn't mean I'll write from it. I'm not really on all the time, else I would feel exhausted. For anyone who's written anything, it's very obvious to you that you can write any story you want and you can think about any character you want and any experience you want if it's something that's deeply rooted in reality then obviously it helps if you have personal experience of it but that's not to say that that's the only way of writing or that that's the best way of writing when you're sat down and, and writing you recollect things i think it's very important that things come from one's own experience but i don't think as a person I, i'm at least not always conscious of what's going on else i just i'd feel like i was an emotional magpie fundamentally theater has to be a metaphorical space where people are telling stories that aren't literal or telling them in ways that aren't literal. Come with me. And therefore, like, your own personal experience as a writer. And you'll be. It has to come second behind the imagination. In a world of pure imagination. Although having said that, you know, when seismic things have happened to me, I have had that 
sort of shutter click at the back of my brain thinking this is how it feels to be such and such what the experience of, of doing cowards for about you know four or five years really drilled into us was a kind of work ethic for people listening who don't know what that is which they, which is every chance they won't it's a sketch that we took to Edinburgh in 2005 and 6 can you please identify this person for me and then did two series of a Radio 4 show no I mean yes I'm... and then only three episodes of BBC 4 show sorry it's not it's not him it's not my father Every week, pretty much, we would all turn up with, like, maybe ten sketches that we'd written. Are you sure? I'm absolutely sure. That's Michael Crawford. And then be completely brutal about which ones we would then perform. Oh, my God, you're right. This is the body of Michael Crawford. This is terrible news. I'm a big fan. Well, from my point of view, I'm overwhelmingly glad that my dad's not dead, but... I can see you point it's certainly newsworthy it gets rid of any kind of preciousness about what you've written you just you, you have to be very thick-skinned about what you've written and how good it is tremendous range as a performer you know he did all his own stunts i'm a bit freaked out i think there's a, a fine line between preciousness and having the kind of courage of your convictions really michael crawford what was he doing in my parents garden I mean, I'll get attached to certain things and I'll stand my ground when there's something which is, like, a really important part of the show. Particularly in comedy, you watch someone like Larry David talk about comedy and and you know he sort of stormed out of meetings because people didn't want to make his show exactly how he wanted to make it. You think to yourself, like, I want to be like that, I want to be the kind of writer who will not take any shit and will not compromise on anything. One of the strange aspects of playwriting is that at some point the writer has to let go of their work and give it to others to turn into something new. The text is complete, but then it has a whole new phase. Mm. Playtexts are not documents in that sense. They are ingredients for possible performances. It's funny how rare it is to feel this is finished. In the best cases, that new phase is new air, new breath, subtext where you hadn't even thought it was there. The script, when it's completed, there's obviously always a, a sort of half an hour of enormous relief and pleasure. They have this sort of strange, semi-detached relationship to performance. The text will disappear. It will feel like it is now the property of the actors. If a play, one feels it has drifted off, then the text almost becomes complete in itself because you feel that that is what was intended, the blueprint at least. The writers job is to make it work on the page and then and then everybody else's job is to make it work in real life and sometimes the writers can really get in the way of that. So do they like to be in rehearsals and watch that process happening? I must admit for me I think going to rehearsals is one of the most exciting things about being a playwright. It's kind of a given with new writers at the moment that you are in the rehearsal room often but I want to be there. I think there's a point uh, usually after about a week and a bit where you feel like uh, I'm the ghost of the feast here and these people would be far better off if I left. I like to be there for the first week and then in and out because I think you can be quite impatient to see it perfect and there's a sort of alchemy that goes on for four weeks that you have to be aware of. I very much like to be involved in rehearsal. In fact, the truth of the matter is that's why I think a lot of us stay with the theatre because we are co-makers of the theatre event. It's this weird contradiction between being something very solitary, so it's just me at my desk, 
to suddenly being in a room full of people who want to ask you questions and want to know more about your about what you do and how you do it. I also know my place. I mean, if I'm in rehearsal with a director, you know, we need to set out about how we're going to handle this thing. I really like writing live in the room and giving text to the theatre makers of performers I'm working with. There's so much of the work that you don't realise until it's up on its feet that is wrong or needs changing. The real joy of working in theatre is the collaborative nature. Well, it sounds like everyone's pretty positive. Rehearsals are good. Seeing a play transform is good. I don't particularly like being in rehearsals. No. Well, all right then. Mainly because I think I'm a blocking presence. I don't feel like I add anything to the room and I feel like I've got my version in my head and just by being there with my version in my head even if I try and keep completely silent I stop creativity for something like Remote which was written for empty connections for young people now we're going to talk about young people in a second Steph so don't jump the gun too much it's really important for me that that cast and creative team can have ownership over the text and their own production so I like to leave lots of room or as much as I think is appropriate but also it's a sort of invitation you know with something like Swallow which is going to be on in the Edinburgh Festival there are, there are basically no stage directions and so for me it's a, it's a question to the director and also it's an invitation to the director to go you know help me realise these words help help me tell this story We're just in the middle of doing this play The Solid Life of Sugarwater for Edinburgh Amit, the director, has made some quite big changes to the text he's been right, he has made a much better piece of work by taking authorial responsibility for it and um, what I really like about directors is when they take authorial responsibility and go this isn't your play, this is my play now rather than some sort of reverence for the text If you think that your play is at risk from actors I just don't think you should be writing plays Okay, now we can talk about young people, Steph In regards to the workshops that I run, there's no age back I work a lot with teenagers and I've taken part in a programme called Class Act which is at the Traverse and that's about engaging final year high school students in playwriting. You, you'll go in for a few sessions and help them create short plays. But it's Jack Thorne who's best known for tapping into the voice of the younger generation. I'm trying not to write for young people at the moment just because I don't want to get stuck in a cul-de-sac of it. it just turned into something that I do a lot of and uh, I love doing it. It's, it's a great Thing to do. Does he know where that impulse to write for young people came from? No, not really. Other than the films that I love tend to be films about young people, so E.T. is my favourite film of all time. Stand My Me's up there. There's a lot of films that are about that generation, so it might just be that something that I'm inclined toward. I've got not much hair anymore, uh, it's only going to get less, and I don't want to turn into a massive pervy uncle going, tell me your stories, youngster. Also, there's a certain thing whereby you don't necessarily know what they're about anymore. Your generation grew up with internet porn, my generation didn't. Doing GCSE revision using Wikipedia, again, not something I know. We have books. My BBC One breakfast radio host was Simon Mayer. That's how, that's how old I am. I don't sit there listening to Radio One taking notes. People get old. Times and tastes change. Dan Rebellato and David Edgar began by talking about 2013, when new writing overtook revivals for the first time in a long time. But they warned that there's very little data to compare their study against, and David is still worried about the state of new writing. There is still 
a prevailing consensus, which kind of sees writing as being rather dusty and old-fashioned and indeed reactionary, and to see devised work and site-specific work and performance work and the overlap between them as up-to-date and progressive and the future. There has been an increase in devised work, but there's also been a dramatic increase in, in new writing. So in a way, there isn't a problem. I don't quite see the same sense of rivalry that David does. I think it's kind of unknowable at the moment. I mean, we, we did the 2013 figures as a pilot. We're hoping the Arts Council are going to pay for us to do the 2014 and 2015, because then I think we'll start to get a really strong sense of the trends. 2013 looks healthy, but, but actually we've got nothing really to compare it to. In fact, you know, if we keep doing this for the next 20 years, we may discover that 2013 was right in a slump for new writing, but actually there's much more exciting stuff to happen once we get rid of the Tory government. Well, that's kind of it. What else is there to say? Of course there are parallels between these writers. On some level they all do the same thing. They are the creators, in Dan Rebellato's words, of uncaused effects. They turn thought and imagination into character and reality. But in so many ways these writers are completely different. There's no way, no way at all, to map a mind, to document the innumerable sparks of thought and intent that turn snatched emotions and observation and invented stories into a play. All these writers, dragged out of the comfort zone of having a blank page and time to shape their words into something they're happy with, forced instead to answer questions thrown at them by me and Annegret, all of them were unfailingly thoughtful about their art and their craft, and all completely committed to what they do. So, Tom Basden, David Edgar, Tim Foley, Katrina Kerridge, Rebecca Lenkiewicz, Dan Rebellato, Steph Smith, Jack Thorne and Steve Waters, thank you. Fuck, I'm a writer. And I don't have to finish then. Pursued by a Bear is an exeunt podcast, and this episode, Uncaused Effects, Playwrights on Playwriting, was presented by Tim Banno and produced by Tim and Anna Gret Merton, in association with Nick Hearn Books. Visit nickhearnbooks.co.uk forward slash exeunt for exclusive discounts on books by many of the playwrights featured in this podcast. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 